Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop Podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Writers Buzz is a series of free events that brings together Colorado's writers and artistic community. Hosted at the Lighthouse Grotto, the format is ever-changing but always fun, encompassing readings and talks and special seminars and collaborations across the disciplines. At the October 2012 Writer's Buzz, From Life to Art, Nick Arvin, who wrote The Reconstructionist, and Catherine Eastburn, who wrote Simon Says, A True Story of Boys, Guns, and Murder, took on that ubiquitous question, how do you craft, experience, research, and antidote into meaningful and effective art? Welcome to Lighthouse Writer's Workshop. Um, Thanks for coming to the Writer's Buzz. My name is Dan Manzanares. I'm Lighthouse's creative curator. Catherine Eastburn worked as a journalist for the Colorado Springs Independent, where her writing and reporting garnered regional and national awards and led to the publication of two books of creative nonfiction, Simon Says, A True Story of Boys, Guns, and Murder, DeCapo 2008, and A Sacred Feast, Reflections on All Day Singing and Dinner on the Ground, University of Nebraska Press, 2008. Her feature writing has been published in... Oh, man, I knew I was going to kill this word. Sover? Sover. Texas Highways and numerous other magazines and newspapers across the United States and Canada. Eastburn completed the MFA in writing in 2006 and since then has taught journalism and creative nonfiction writing at the Colorado College in Colorado Springs. She joined the Lighthouse faculty in 2010. Her personal essay column, The Middle Distance, is published and broadcast weekly on KRCC Public Radio in Colorado Springs. Uh, please welcome Katherine Eastburn. Well, somebody said woo. Thanks, Andrea. So, um, I was asked, uh, along with Nick Arvin, to talk about turning life into art and all week I kept turning it around and saying turning art into life and what's that? I was just saying the whole week I was Yeah, backward but it's kind of the same thing anyway um, but I was very excited to be asked to present beside Nick um, because I actually reviewed his collection of short stories in the Electric Eden in 2003 Um, We were just freaking out about the fact that that was nearly 10 years ago, um, a few minutes ago, and um, interviewed him when his book Articles of War came out for my newspaper in Colorado Springs. So I've admired his work for a long time. As young as he is, it has been a long time. Um, So I teach um, mostly personal essay and memoir, here at Lighthouse, even though neither of my books is a memoir or a collection of personal essays. Um, I went to graduate school late. I entered graduate school when I was 50 years old um, to get an MFA. I'd been working as a journalist for 15 years, and I fell in love with long-form journalism, which right now is really experiencing a heyday. A a huge number of great works are coming out right now in this area. I recommend long reads, 
that's a really great website. Um, and byliner.com, The Atavist. These are all places where this really good narrative journalism is now coming out. And I wanted to do that. And you can't do that in a newspaper's pages, even an alternative news weekly, unless you're Alan Prendergast and there are no other writers at your paper. Um, Alan's the one who writes all the big 10,000-word stories for Westward. He's also my colleague at Colorado College. Um, But anyway, I wanted to do that, and the story that I had um, when I was in graduate school to work on was this gruesome story that I had reported for the newspaper for a number of years, Um, court proceedings against three teenage boys in Colorado Springs who went to the same high school as my three teenage boys who lived in the same neighborhood, um, pretty much, that I lived in and who, um, over the course of time, had become indoctrinated into a um, paramilitary organization, a secret paramilitary organization, and murdered three people a 15-year-old, and his grandparents. And this was a a huge shock in the community and even more so in the neighborhood. And uh, I recall at the time I, I said to a really good friend of mine who also had three teenagers who went to the same high school, um, you know, I said these kids had gone to school for nearly four months after the crime occurred, before they were arrested and before the case was broken. And um, so I said to her, wow, you know, that could have been one of our kids. And she said, well, not mine. (laughs) And I thought, well, okay, Uh, somebody needs to talk about this. The The community, like many communities, it's not unique to Colorado Springs, wanted to just say, this kid is evil, this kid is evil, this kid is evil. Let's just put them in jail. We'll put them in prison. We'll forget about them. And we will never have to ask the question, how could this occur in our backyard? And it literally did. There was a stash of guns a half block away from my house in a house that was owned by one of the parents of one of these kids. Um, So my task was to figure out how I had court records, I had police records, I had interviewed many of the players in the story, lawyers, investigators, some of the kids, Um, I had, you know, done a lot of legwork on this story, but how to turn it into a narrative, how to take this very bizarre twist of life and turn it into a narrative was the task. And um, I didn't have a clue where to begin. Um, I did discover that in nonfiction, just as in fiction, the same things happen. Um, One of them is to find salient sensory detail in the record. Um, I kept getting hints about the personalities of these boys who were 
15, 16, and 18 years old at the time uh, that they were incarcerated. And, um, but that was all hearsay. You know, it was, well, John is this kind of kid, and Simon is this kind of kid, and Isaac was this kind of kid. Um, So I needed to find in the record, and I had a massive amount of information. One of the uh, attorneys turned over the discovery file to me um, because one of the defendant's parents wanted uh, this story to come out. So I had thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of information. And I had to comb through it to discover what kind of people these kids really were from their own mouths, not from their neighbor or a perception that was created by the events that had occurred, not an afterthought, oh, yeah, I always did notice he was weird, or, yeah, he did seem very immature. These are the kinds of things, you know, you heard a lot. So I I started going through the record, and um, some of it was part of the official record. Some of it was information that the families turned over to me because they want, they understood this was going to be a book. It was going to come out. I had a contract to publish it, and at that point, they understood if I want my son to be depicted as a whole human being and not as a caricature, then I need to help her. I need to give her something that will help her. So um, Isaac Grimes, who was the youngest of these three, he became the youngest inmate in the Colorado Department of Corrections. He went to Sterling at 15. Um, His uh, parents gave me the letters that he had written to them and to his little brothers while he was in the county jail in fair play awaiting trial. And... um, They were all handwritten, and they were handwritten very meticulously on yellow legal pads, and he had to ration his paper, and so he would write very, very tiny um, to make the most of the amount of paper he had. But And most of it was just kind of rambling. You know, there's a spider on the window ledge and this and that. Um, But in one letter, he had written his uh, mother... And it was around this time of year, and he said to her in this letter, he's in jail, and he has two little brothers who are nine and seven, and he says, "Um, here, I I want you to get um, my brothers these Lego sets for Christmas from me, and this is the Lego set I want for myself. And it was such a, a fabulous detail, and it just killed me. I mean, it just really struck me. This was the detail that really showed how what an incredibly young soul this was. What a boy um, this 15-year-old was. He was a kid. Um, and then as I was searching through one of the other things I had heard from some of the other uh, kids who were involved in this crime was that uh, the leader, Simon, 
um, had a very romantic notion that he was some kind of hero and that he was going to go, um, his family were from Guyana and had emigrated uh, to Colorado Springs and he had a big connection, family there. And he was going to be the person who was going to take soldiers in when there was a coup in Guyana and go in and rescue everybody and be part of the counter-revolution. And, and he was very much into you know studying all of this. And But this is what people had told me. And I didn't have anything um, to really, that I really knew to... to make that true. So going through the record again, um, one of the things I did was every time I went to court, I would go and ask the clerk to let me see everything that had been added to the record in the months since I had been there last. And um, there are all kinds of motions filed, motion after motion after motion after motion. It's mostly paperwork you really don't want to read. Um, but at one point, uh, Simon, who was already uh, imprisoned, had um, petitioned the court to ask to reclaim a bunch of things that were taken from his family's house the night that their house was raided. And... Um, I didn't know what those things were. You know, I had an idea what some of them were. But there he had to there had to be a very specific enumerated list of everything that was taken from the house and it was part of a uh, things that the police had confiscated. And they were all still in the police's possession. He was petitioning for his family to get them back. And among them were, he was a coin collector, there were coins, there were um, these weird little ribbons that he had made with the initials of his organization on them. But hidden in this long, long list that was three pages long was, um, he had, uh, one of the things they had taken was a green velvet bag with a lock of black hair in it. And it was labeled fiancé. And there had been, you know, a, an unconfirmed rumor that he was engaged to a Guyanan girl. And that he and the other boys had told the investigators, well, when we go to Guyana, he's going to find us all wives. He's going to find us all girlfriends. And, you know, these were young boys who were not well-adjusted in high school and weren't the kind of guys who were, you know, getting the chicks. So that was that was a real uh, turn-on for them. And he was, He did have this notion of himself as this romantic figure. He had kept a lock of his fiancée's hair and put it in a green velvet bag and kept it in the basement of his house, which was one of those tiny, tiny, just stunning details um, that you find in this, in this mining process in nonfiction. Um, so... You know, I guess the task is not that different um, for the nonfiction writer than the fiction writer. 
Um, we are doing very different things. I, I read this great piece this week by a science writer, which I am not, uh, David Schenk, who's written a book about chess. He's written books about uh, solar systems, all kinds of crazy stuff. But um, he said um, that nonfiction is an art that demands the same thing that fiction demands, creativity, humanity, humility, deep thought, endless amounts of attention to detail, and an openness of truth that goes beyond any list of facts. And I thought that was a lovely quote, and I thought it was very pertinent to what we're talking about here tonight. Yes, you have lists of facts. You have lots and lots of lists of facts and boxes and boxes of information about whatever it is you're writing about. But um, a nonfiction writer's task is to mine that material for the real gold that is there. The thing that it, it's a moment of discovery when that happens. I think the worst nonfiction is um, written by people who have an idea that they already know everything there is to know about a subject. And um, usually that's a textbook. So it, that's different than creative nonfiction, which is the worst term in the world for a genre. But it's what we do. It's uh, kind of weird to be defined by what you don't do, uh, what, what we are not. Um, but the best nonfiction writers um, are able to go into the big giant boxes of facts and uh, and. I, Granted, I don't count myself among them, um, but I'm thinking about people like Susan Orlean, John McPhee. Uh, I am in love with this writer um, who writes for GQ a lot. His name is Michael Patternitty. I don't know if you guys read him or not. He's fabulous. He wrote the best story about the um, Fukushima, the the tidal wave, earthquake, Japan, last year, called The Man Who Sailed His House. And it's written like a hero's tale. And it's just a, a story about a man who lived on a farm inland who was swept up in the tidal wave, went back out to sea floating on the roof of his house and was at sea for a number of days before he was rescued. And everyone in his family was obliterated, and including his wife, um, who he had seen just minutes before this happened. And he wasn't, you know, a hero hero. He was just an ordinary man. And he ended up being a brief, having a brief moment of celebrity in Japan when he was rescued from the roof of this house. But Michael Paternetti saw this little tiny, I don't know, AP story, little bitty item about this guy getting picked up who was floating on the roof of his house out in the ocean after the tidal wave and he had been in the hospital in Tokyo and then was released and he said wow I'll bet there's a great story there and he went to Japan and he pursued um, Hiro Mitsu the hero of his story and spent a great deal of time with him and you know really got him to talk about 
what was going on through his, in his head when he was out there and wrote this incredible story, you know, just finding the most amazing details in that event. Um, so what we do is we take science or food or books or crime or music or any subject and... Um, in turning it into art, I think most of you take classes at Lighthouse, so you know what it requires. It requires good storytelling. It requires developing characters, even though they're real people. It requires learning how to create scenes and how to write dialogue and how to write description, and just as a fiction writer would, except you don't make stuff up. So um, it's, it is different, um, but also the same. Um, it was very hard, in Simon Says, uh, the hardest thing was to turn court proceedings into narrative. That was incredibly difficult. Um, I sat for probably... I don't know, maybe a total of 200 hours in court, you know, over a number of years, listening to just these endless motions and, uh, you know, just boring, boring stuff. Sorry, Mr. Criminal Defense Attorney, who I met earlier tonight, but really, most of it was pretty, most of it was pretty ordinary. Um, But it was great then to go back years later to look at the notes um, that I had made, the the chit-chat of the lawyers when they would come in talking to each other about how cold it was, whether the snow was good up on the mountain, were they going to Breckenridge or Aspen this weekend, you know, and all of this was in fair play, you you know, the smallest town in the world, South Park, and uh, it was pretty fun. But turning the court proceedings into narrative was incredibly difficult and it was a a very difficult task of winnowing it down having 40 times more material than I could possibly use and going through it and finding what dialogue was really interesting and I couldn't make it up so it had to be part of the record if it went into quotes and uh it, it's kind of a treasure hunt, really. It was it was uh, it was tough. In the other book that I wrote, um, and I wrote these books at the same time. I was stupid. I <laughs> I sent in book proposals to um, two different well, to an agent and to a university press at the same time, never dreaming that I would end up being able to actually write both of them. And they both came out. One came out in January and one came out in April of 2008. So I had the same deadline for both of these books. So I was writing about murder and mayhem and adolescent psyche and craziness and terror on the one hand. On the other hand, I was writing about this delightful thing called sacred harp singing that I had also written about as a journalist. (laughs) that um, it's kind of the, the, the two 
polar um, ends of what nonfiction writers do. You know, one thing they do is they take a true story and try to fi- tr- try to discover new things about it to make it bigger and clearer. Um, to people and that's what I was trying to do as Simon says the other thing they do is they get obsessed with the subject and fall in love with it and just say I've got to find out a way to be able to keep doing this and I fell in love with sacred harp singing so I took a newspaper story I pitched it to a magazine I took the story about music that I had published in a magazine pitched it as a food story Got a food store, food magazine to buy it. Changed it again. Had it published. You know, changed the whole story. Did it from another angle, somewhere else. And finally, got a publisher to say, write a book about it. You know, a popular book about it, not an academic. There are many studies about it, and I'm not an academic, and I'm not a music. Uh, expert, but this was this old singing tradition that exists all over the country, including Denver and Fort Collins and Boulder and Colorado Springs, that s- continues today exactly as it was practiced 200 years ago in the exact same formation, the same songs, the same ritual. They're hymns. They're sung in four-part harmony. They're, they're hauntingly weird. They're sung in minor chords. They're loud. You sing all day long. You sing from 9 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon with this group, and it's just fantastic. But... I was, so I was doing these two things simultaneously, going from murder to singing and murder to singing and murder to singing. Um, but I had to figure out the singing book was so obscure. You know, the problem with, with uh, nonfiction is people are interested in stuff, but that doesn't mean they want to read a whole book about it. I mean, you know, somebody might be a little bit interested in the fact that their town has had a sacred harp singing going on for 105 years in the same building with the same families continuously, you know, that's kind of cool. You could get that in a regional magazine. You might want to read that much about it. But if you're not a sacred harp singer, are you really going to be interested in reading a whole book about it? So I didn't really turn it into art. I really turned it into pop, and I added recipes. <laughs> and uh, that was what worked. Um, but to me, it didn't matter because, to me, sacred harp singing is art. It's, it is life as art. It is sitting in the middle of the experience of art for a day, which is a pretty remarkable uh, thing to do. Anyway, uh, I'm digressing. Um, So, yeah, one of the things, uh, the jobs of a nonfiction writer is to come up with devices to get people to read a whole book about a nonfiction subject. It's not like we can make up suspense and tension or make up a plot to keep dragging the reader along. Um, We really can't. And everything I've said... I think really applies to personal narrative as well as literary journalism. I think it applies to memoir. I think it applies to personal essay. That 
This is a process of discovery, and it does depend on scenes and description and character and dialogue. And it, um, most importantly, I think, is the is the idea of it being a process of discovery. You know, it's not autobiography. Memoir and personal essay are not autobiography. They are, it's exploring an aspect of your life and finding, turning that into art. Um, I think what we do is sometimes we try to help readers discover a new world. Sometimes we try to help readers have compassion for their own lives. That's what I think memoir does. I think it's all about compassion, and I don't mean lovey-dovey compassion. I mean understanding that you're a part of the human race, just like everybody else is, including the villains in your life. Um, I think that's true of literary journalism. It certainly was true for me writing a book about crime. Um, It was very hard to understand that Everyone deserved the same kind of representation as a human being in this work. And the same is true in memoir. Um, The darkest people in your lives may turn out to be the most interesting character in your memoir. Um, I talk to my students a lot about compassion, and I'm not sure um, I'm ever able to get it Across, but to me, it's everything in nonfiction. I believe it's everything in nonfiction. Um, the other thing the nonfiction writer is doing is always to allow the possibility of a more complicated truth. So, whatever we know about some subject, we have to be willing to. Be open to that idea that there is a more complicated truth out there about it, and we are searching for that. And I guess that's what fiction writers do, too. I don't know. I don't write fiction. I'm trying, but I'm an utter failure at it. Um, What happens is, when you approach it this way, in search of a new truth, an opening occurs a literal opening of your heart, of your mind. And I was most impressed when I was here um, last year when Mary Carr was here talking to the group. And she described so beautifully having that opening herself. She had perceived a certain thing about her life all the way up to the point that she was writing her third book. And she realized that wasn't the way it was. It was another way. At that point, she ditched a thousand pages of her work and threw it away and started all over because she wanted to get it right. But what she was talking about was experiencing that opening, trying to find a more complicated truth and seeing it and pursuing it. Um, So I'm not going to talk at you much more I am going to read to you just a little tiny piece. I write a personal column for public radio every week. I have the best writing job in the world. I 
I came back to Colorado Springs in 2010. A guy who used to work for me at the newspaper said, will you write a personal essay every week? You can write it about anything you want, and I'll put it on the radio. And it's five minutes, and that's only 750 words. So it's totally manageable. Um, But at that time, uh, the, uh, the year my books came out, 2008, in a, an eight-month period, my 25-year-old nephew, my 22-year-old son, and my 55-year-old sister died. So the books coming out really wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, I was a little involved in another process at that moment. And the thing that has happened for me um, was somebody just said to me, you can write about that if you want. So um, I really have spent the last, um, I started writing it in July of 2010. I've written 113 of them at this point, and uh, this is one of them. And I wrote this one in uh, 2010 in the summer. It's called Boat Garden. In mid-2007, I started dreaming of water. A calm lake ringed by trees, I floated along in an aluminum boat. No motor, just a paddle and a gentle rocking motion. Some nights I woke up with aching arms. I fixated on this idea of paddling, of rowing my boat, getting stronger, moving over water. Weekends, I scoured rural real estate listings on the internet, looking for a house near a lake in Tennessee, North Carolina, Kentucky, I found cheap, broken-down houses in remote areas and imagined leaving everything behind, trading in my Subaru for a used pickup truck and lighting out for the territory. But the real estate game was little more than a dreamy way to pass a Saturday. Truth was, I was broke and selling the house I lived in, planning a move to the Gulf Coast of Texas where I would help my mother take care of my dying sister. I had just met deadlines on two books, and I was dead tired. End of July, the for sale sign is up, and the full moon washes the sky. One terrible night, my 22-year-old son's sudden, violent death, and with it go all peaceful dreams. This shock, this startling grief, this frightening sense of wanting to live but not knowing how felt a little like drowning. I treaded frantically, desperate not to slip under, and somehow made it to September and the grace of leaving. I winnowed down my household belongings to what would fit in a small U-Haul trailer. I said goodbye to my Colorado town and pulled out for the 1,100-mile drive from rock to sand, altitude to sea level. It was good rattling along at 55 miles an hour on back roads, listening to Hank Williams and Merle Haggard on classic country radio, crying when I felt like it. Looking back now, I realized I was more than a little crazed and probably shouldn't have made that trip alone, pulling what little was left of home behind me. But being alone beat the heck out of being with people, searching for something to say. There was nothing left to say. About 60 miles west of Waco on the second day, rain started coming down in sheets. Black clouds overhead drooped downward like weighty breasts. My windshield wipers struggled through rivers of downpour and failed to even part the waters. 
Finally, edging on the shoulder of a county highway, I spotted a hill above and a county church with a circular driveway and gravel parking lot beneath a ring of pecan trees. I pulled off, parked, and watched from my bird's eye view as the road below filled with water, melding with the surrounding landscape into one big boiling lake. There was nothing to do but sleep. I stayed on that hill for five hours. Red Subaru, white U-Haul trailer, orange lettering, black sky, brown muddy water. My universe. The rain ceased and the water finally retreated. I drove to Waco, past cars washed up like toys on the surrounding fields, past a Walmart parking lot that had become a rescue station. I headed south and didn't stop until I had reached Galveston and my mother's house and the smell of fresh-baked biscuits, my coming-home dinner. In the months to come, I planted a garden in a boat, a simple aluminum hull, just like the one in my dreams, a boat my son and his cousin had fished in when they were younger. I learned to paddle a fishing kayak and wound it through tall grasses in a warm, shallow bayou alongside my brother-in-law. He would cast his line and wait for a strike while I watched the wavy grasses below the water's surface dancing a delicate hula. The next year, after the spring of my sister's death, natural and sweet, just as her life had been, my boat garden flourished as I wilted in the damp heat of the Gulf Coast summer. Some friends invited me to cool off one day at the local water park, Schlitterbahn, an elaborate man-made river pumped constantly with flowing bay waters on which hordes of humanity floated in inner tubes past elaborate slides and flumes over waterfalls and through blue lagoons. We were three plump, middle-aged women stuffed into our bathing suits, and we fit in just fine. It felt fine, better than fine, bobbing along, twirling with the current, floating in a sea of people happy just to be wet and cool, wiry teenaged boys, chubby babies with sausage curls cradled in the muscled arms of their bearded daddies, shrinking girls, shrieking girls tugging at their bikini tops, red-eyed grandmothers in rubber bathing caps. I leaned back and closed my eyes, rocking gently in their wake. There was nothing to do but go wherever the rolling waters pulled us. So, that's what I do, and I don't know if it's art. I'm not sure nonfiction can be, but it's fun. So. Thank you, Catherine. That was wonderful. Yeah? That was wonderful. <laughs> All right. It's so impressive. You know, I'm a fiction writer, but... Um, and the, the, the longer I do it, the more I'm like, honesty, honesty in my head. But it's this honesty that, you know, I don't really know these people, you know, that, that I'm writing about. Um, but when I feel like I'm getting somewhere, it's when I do feel something from them, when these guys get put through hell or whatever. And it's just so impressive to me listening to nonfiction people talk about their process. Because <laughs> it is like, that is going for you and the people that you love or those people that are out there in the world. And it's just fantastic. 
I mean, it's hard, but man, it's good stuff. Um, all right. We're going to switch gears to Nick Arvin. Um, uh, Nick Arvin grew up in Clio, Michigan. He earned degrees in mechanical engineering from the University of Michigan and Stanford, and he was and he has worked in automotive engineering, forensic engineering, and the design of power plants and oil and gas facilities. Arvin is also the author of three books: *In the Electric Eden*, *Articles of War*, and *The Reconstructionist*. His work has appeared in the *New Yorker*, *New York Times*, *Wall Street Journal*, *Salon*, and *Rocky Mountain News*. And has been honored and, and has been honored uh, with numerous awards, including the Rosenthal Foundation Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Boyd Award from the American Library Associ- Association, the Colorado Book Award, and fellowships from the Missioner Copernicus Society, the Isherwood Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. He lives in Denver, Colorado, where he is on the faculty of the Lighthouse Writers Workshop. Please give a warm welcome to Nick Arvin. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Um, life from art. I was I was wondering whether I mean is it possible to create art that doesn't come from life in some way? Um, but the interesting thing is how do you how do you get there from here? I was also thinking maybe the more interesting question is how do you get life out of the way of art? Um, I feel like that's been my my struggle lately. Is like life is just a pain in the ass and. <laughs> How am I supposed to get any art done? Um, which is partly my, my way of apologizing if I'm a little disorganized today. Because um, life has been a pain in the ass lately. Um, but I... So what I'm going to do is... Uh, is I'm going to talk about my most recent book, which came out this past spring, called The Reconstructionist. Um, and it's uh, it's a novel about... Um, forensic engineering and the reconstruction of car crashes and it um, it comes out of uh, some work that I used to do um, I, I, I'm an engineer in my day job and I worked um, worked uh, f- well the history is that I worked my first job was at, at Ford uh, in automotive engineering and doing product development and and then I quit there to work on my writing for uh, about three years. I did an MFA. Uh, I'm, I had a grant and moved out to Denver on that grant and spent a year working on my first novel, Articles of War. And then the grant ran out and I, I needed to find a job. And my my background at that time was, was automotive engineering. You look around Denver, there's not much of a automotive industry in Denver. And so I uh, was trying to figure out what I could do with this automotive background. And I stumbled on forensic engineering. Um, and there, there are forensic engineers who, who look at different kinds of uh, sort of auto mechanical or industrial or um, uh, structural accidents. But uh, there, there are forensic engineers who focus on car crashes and um so i i you know sent resumes out to a couple of uh firms that did this in in denver and um 
one of them happened to land on the the desk of a guy who was particularly uh, he's, he's he's a very good writer um, i'm still friends with him he's uh he read really widely he was a very good writer and he he was impressed that at that point i had, I had sold my first book um a collection of stories and he was impressed by that so he brought me in for an interview and i ended up with the job and um it's it's a weird job uh you you your job is to um basically what when i was doing the job i was i was working uh, to do analysis um supporting um uh engineers who were, who were going to be testifying expert witnesses in court um occasionally we'd work for an insurance company um but probably 90 percent of our work was um in for court cases and so we i i would i would do the the analysis of these car crashes um and you know create um i would write reports and sort of create all this background information that would feed into um the expert's testimony and uh, in a lot of cases, you know, you, you'd do all this work, and then the case would never actually end up in court. So they would they would settle out of court. Um, but so we would we would look at things like uh, tire marks. We would look at um, how a vehicle was damaged, um, like what we called crush depth. Uh, we would look at scratches on the vehicle. Um, we would look at you know which windows were broken out. Um, you would look at uh, if the windows were broken out, where was the glass on the ground? Um, if they hit any guardrails, you would look at those. Uh, trees, uh, if they went off the road, they'd leave marks over there. They're, you know, these cars are 3,000 pounds of metal and plastic and glass flying around. And once they get out of control, um, they tend to leave a fair amount of evidence lying around. So we would look at all these pieces of evidence, and um, the, so there was a forensic aspect of just sort of piecing things together. Um, and then there was also um, a physics-based aspect to it, um, where we would literally apply the equations of physics to to figure out how fast these vehicles were going, um, figure out when people had put on the brakes, what um, what were they doing with the steering wheel what we call driver inputs. And, um, and we would reconstruct our, our version of the accident. Um, and we were, you know, we were working for one side or the other in a court case. So we would, um, we would reconstruct things as, as strictly as possible, adhering to the, to the evidence. Um, but we also wanted to, to emphasize whatever aspects were, um, uh, were you know helpful to to our client? Uh, so, for example, I worked on a number of cases for Ford, just coincidentally because I'd worked for them in the past, and it just happened that this this company also worked for Ford. Um, and um, in a lot of cases, you know, there, some some very violent collision would occur, and people would be hurt or killed, um, and the plaintiffs would argue. You know, in these circumstances, Ford should have designed a vehicle that that would protect these people. And so, what we would want to show is that this violent had been so extremely violent, and that that it wasn't reasonable to expect that um, 
you know, a vehicle could protect these could protect people in this this kind of circumstance that so you'd have to have people driving around in tanks basically to prevent this kind of thing um so we, we've got the um the, <laughs> the it equipment set up here uh because one of the things we would do was uh w- was create animations that that showed um our our version of of what we believe happened in these accidents um and I'll, I'll describe that process a little more once we've got an image up um and actually, I'm going to turn it on because it takes a little while to warm up. Um, but the um, the point of the animations was was to prevent a very very clear, um, you know, dramatic. Again, if we were working for Ford, you know, they they want to show how violent this collision had been, um, and. Uh, you know, so it was a format that allowed us to emphasize certain points to to a jury. Um, one of the things that we had to be very careful of was that if the opposing side could show that any um, anything in the animation was incorrect, then they could um, you know they could protest to the judge. You know, this this animation is not right, and the judge would throw it out of court. And these these animations were very expensive to produce, talking ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars. So if you screwed up some little detail that got the thing thrown out of court, then you've just you know dumped thirty thousand dollars down the toilet, um, which tend to make your clients unhappy. <laughs> so we uh, we had to be incredibly meticulous about uh, every detail that was in the animation. Um, and so I'll talk a little more about, about that process as we're looking at them, too. Can you get the, uh, the lights in front there, Dan? And so the, the goal here is to scare the crap out of you and make sure that you don't want to drive home tonight. Um, I'm going to stop that. Stop that. Um, and, you know, I, I worry with these animations. I mean, these animations are, are very dramatic, um, very realistic. Uh, they are based on... The, so, you know, to be clear, this is not real. This is, this is a recreation... Um, and no actual vehicles or people were injured in the process of making these recreations. <laughs> it's all done in the computer. Um, but they are, they are based on, on real accidents. Um, and I, I worry a little bit that, that people come out of watching these things feeling like, that was interesting, I don't need to read a whole book about that. That was too scary. <laughs> Um, so let me assure you that the book is not just one long um, yeah, series of scary crashes. Um, I'll, I'll talk a little more about that after. You know, I want to sort of talk about the work, and then I'll talk a little bit about how, how the process of pulling that into a book, um, into a novel in particular. Um, but it's, you know, ultimately it's a book about people and about the relationships between people. And and it's about collisions, and there there are vehicular collisions, 
uh, as we call them, vehicular collisions. I love the nerdy terms, um, but uh, it's 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 you know really about collisions between people and you know the effect of those on them and and how how they deal with those collisions and how they um, how they survive. Um, but so this this particular animation, um, what you're seeing here is we we would take a photo at the scene of the accident. So. Um, one of our engineers would go out to the actual accident site and and take a bunch of photos. Um, in this case, you can see that some other reconstructionist got there before we did because he took he did all this orange paint along the side of the road, and he was what he was doing was circling evidence, which we didn't do because the police don't like it. Um, but and so then the in this case the accident happened at night, so. Um, the photo was taken during the day and our, our computer animation guys darkened the photo to make it look like it's nighttime. And then they put that vehicle in there. So when the photo was taken, there was no vehicle there. It was just an empty road. And the, the vehicle is just a computer animation of a vehicle. Um, and in this particular accident, what happened is the left rear tire so that's this tire here blew out, and um, as the as the vehicle was going down the road at something like seventy miles an hour, and uh, because the, that tire was suddenly gone, the vehicle started drifting to the left, and uh, you can see you can see that that's that process has already begun because the vehicles drifted across the, the yellow line, and so the the driver. Um, first of all, it's very noisy. The, uh, you know, I'm not sure about this case, but usually when these um, these tires blow out, part of the the tire will sort of flap around, and as it as it's going around, it smack into the wheel well, and it makes a lot of noise. It's it's probably quite scary. And meanwhile, your vehicle's drifting to the left, and so what the driver did was steer to the right, try to steer back into the lane, and um, she did. What again? The nerdy term. We, she did what we would call overcorrecting, um, which is very easy to do when you've lost a tire because when she turns to the right, you've got no no tire at the back on the on the left side. So there's there's sort of nothing slowing the vehicle down in that corner in the way that it normally would, and so the the turn to the right causes the vehicle to turn a lot more quickly than you would normally expect it to. Um, so when I run the animation, what you'll see is the, the vehicle turns to the right um, very quickly, and you know it's still going fast. It's, it started to slow down from the initial speed of 70 miles an hour or whatever, but it's still at like 60 or something like that. And um, so as it turns really hard to the right, the left side wheels start to bite into the roadway. And... Um, the uh, the left rear wheel does it first, and you know at the accident at the accident site you can actually see this um, scrape through the road where the the vehicle, the wheel had been sort of tearing through the asphalt, um, and then the the front wheel starts to bite in too, and then at that point the whole vehicle just starts flipping down the road. Um, one of the things that's kind of creepy about these is, and there's a lot of creepy, right? 
Um, but one of the things that's kind of creepy is there's, there are no people in the vehicles. Um, so the, the, like the intense detail that I was talking about in terms of when we were working on these things involved, um, for example, we, we would print out this long map of the scene. And in this case, the accident happened in California, and the, the police um, did a really good job of documenting the accident. It was funny, the range of difference you get in that. Like in this case, we got a report that was like this thick. Um, with a survey of the scene and, and all sorts of detail. Um, sometimes you get one page with somebody's little hand-drawn, half-assed version of the accident on it. And um, So our, our job was a lot easier when the, the, the police did a good job. Um, but in this case, they, they had mapped out all these uh, sort of divots in the, the side of the road where the vehicle had hit and created these um, impact points in the dirt. Um, and we, we did a, a really comprehensive survey of the vehicle itself. And so we would we'd take a, a model of the vehicle, we'd go out and buy a toy, basically, um, about this big, and um, we'd have the map of the, the roadway and the side of the road that the police had created. Um, on the floor mapped out and we'd we'd sit there and you can see in this case the vehicle rolled I think three and three quarter times we'd turn this this uh, toy vehicle from point to point trying to figure out exactly which point on the vehicle it hit which point on the ground um, and and then going back and working through we used this elaborate Excel spreadsheet that had um, kinematic equations in it to model the motion of the vehicle in terms of in terms of the physics, and so we'd we'd go back and forth between those things, trying to figure out what made sense, um, just you know logically, and then what made sense in terms of the physics. Um, and it took, um, you know, we we spent weeks and weeks on that that case. Um, and so one of the things that was uh, strange to deal with uh, when I was doing the work was the, that this distance between um, the highly detailed analytical nature of what we were doing, um, looking at these vehicles that kind of didn't have people in them, um, because we... we you know, we, we were analyzing the vehicle. We were analyzing the vehicle motion, and um, the the people were kind of irrelevant to what we were doing. So there's that, and then there's there's the sort of unavoidable fact of um, how dramatic and and tragic and and just horrible these accidents were, and 
you know, the huge impact that they had on, on the lives of the people who were involved and their families. And our job was to, to put that aside and really not think about it and, and focus on, you know, the physics. Um, so part of what, what I needed to do for myself in the, the process of working on the book was to, um, to try and figure out how to close that gap again. Because um, it was something that, that, you know, for me was, was, was a real struggle in the, in the process of doing the work. Um, so I'm going to sh- show just a couple more of these. Um, and so that, uh, that first accident um, is actually is sort of in the book. Um, the book, uh, the book takes the point of view of uh, a young engineer named Ellis, and he, uh, at the beginning of the book, is, is kind of at loose ends. He's, he's not really found a, a career in engineering, and um, he runs into the girlfriend of his half-brother who died in a, in a car accident years and years ago. And so he, um, he starts talking to this woman. Her name is Heather. And it turns out that her husband is an accident reconstructionist, uh, which sounds like an interesting job to Ellis. And so he, he has an engineering degree. He hasn't really used it much. Um, so he asks Heather if uh, she could connect him with her, her husband and see if maybe he could get a job. Um, so he gets a job interview. And uh, if you read the book, there's a scene where uh, Ellis arrives for his interview and there's a a smashed up vehicle in the corner of the parking lot and Boggs is the name of um, the the husband and boss who, who interviews him and Boggs takes him over to this smashed up vehicle and um, starts quizzing him about you know how would you analyze the accident that this vehicle was in and um, that ve- the vehicle that I had in mind was was that that vehicle that that I worked on and that's shown in that that animation um, and then this other one, this is the other one that I have uh, from an accident that I, that I worked on when I was doing the work. Um, and this is a, a head-on collision that comes up near the end of the book. Um, and Ellis and, and Boggs, at this point, have worked together for years. And um, it was, this is an accident that they, in the book, that they worked on together. Um, and they, they start talking about um, the different memories that um, different people who were involved in the aftermath of this accident had, or how they described that aftermath. Um, and it, it connects to one of the themes of the book, which is, is about how, um, how, how memory varies uh, from person to person and, and how memory varies from reality or how memory varies from what physics, anyway, would tell you is reality. Um, everyone, everyone's scared to drive home yet? <laughs> um, just to prepare you, what, what's going to happen here is this, this is a van coming down the road. It's not doing anything wrong. 
it's just driving along in its lane and uh there's a i think it was a chrysler it doesn't matter a chrysler something um that was passing in a no passing zone going the other way um and the two collide head on And then what, what the animators do here um, is, so this, these are animated vehicles. This is, the, the background, again, is a photograph of the scene. In this case, it was a photograph, not that we took, but the, uh, the police or somebody at the scene immediately after the accident took. And you, you can tell, at this point, you can already tell it's a recent photo because the, the black marking underneath the van is uh, a burn mark. Uh, this, this van caught on fire after the accident and created that burn mark. Uh, but then what the animators did next is to fade from this recreation of where the vehicles were to the actual vehicles uh, in the, the original photograph. Um, and then to give another idea of sort of the process of recreating these things. So what this, this animation is going to show is the two vehicles as they come together. And then the, you know, the real issue in this, this, this case came about because, um, and again, we were, we were working for Ford in this case. This was a Ford van, and um, the, the van caught fire after the accident. Um, if, if a vehicle caught fire after an accident, you could be pretty sure there would be a, a court case because... Um, people tend to feel like at this point in, in automotive design history, cars shouldn't catch fire. Um, so in, in this case, we were, we were showing for our version for Ford of um, how exactly the vehicle had caught fire. And, and so the, this is a, you know, a very technical kind of presentation showing how a, a frame rail... So it's, the two vehicles are going to come together and it's going to zoom in on the van and show how this frame rail at the bottom of the vehicle was distorted and bent by the force of the collision, and uh, it pushed into the um, into the fuel tank. So the idea is partly to just show how, you know, I mean, these frame rails are big pieces of steel, and you know, the, the for, that collision was so violent that it forces that that frame rail into that very big distortion through here, and this is the fuel tank back here, and it pushed it right into the fuel tank. All right, um, I'm going to show you just one more animation. And this is one that I did not actually work on, but it's um, it's interesting in part because they, uh, the animators... So you'll see it at um, actual speed first and then a, um, a slow-mo version of it. And I think the, the slow-mo kind of brings out um, 
how wacky the, the physics in these cases can be. Uh, this is another head-on collision. It's similar to the, the previous one. Oops, I went full screen. So this, this to me is interesting because from a very cold analytical technical point of view, <laughs> I'm not actually Spock and just, I just played one in a job for a little while. Um, uh, so but what, so when, when two vehicles collide at, at high speed, uh, you can you can usually tell where they hit each other because um, the the two vehicles hitting each other will will force the the dynamics of the, that collision forces the two noses of the vehicle downward and so they they'll both usually scrape into the ground or at least one of them will so you'll have a scrape point there and then the other thing that happens is they're both smashing each other's radiators and um, the condenser for your uh, AC system. And sometimes other other fluids get brake fluid will get broken open as well. So you've got all these fluids that that burst out at that point. And so you've got this point on the road where the two vehicles hit each other that you can you can say, okay, this is what we would call the point of impact. Um, and then you can figure out where they ended up because you've got two vehicles sitting there, and you say, okay, that's the point of rest. Um, but Sometimes figuring out how they got from the point of impact to the point of rest is not not intuitive, and this is a very dramatic version of that because this this vehicle does this really weird pirouette, and I can remember in a couple of cases like this where the the vehicle you know you knew it hit going this way at this point, and then somehow it ends up completely spun around and backwards in some other place. And that's where um, you know the physics and sort of using those equations can help sometimes to figure out how the heck they could have gotten from one to the other. Here's a little car crash humor. This is, <laughs> I actually did a search on the New Yorker website for cartoons about car crashes, and this is what I came up with. Yeah, it says, another reckless baby driver, this is a little baby in the window. Another reckless baby driver. I'd arrest the whole lot of them if they weren't so damn cute. 
And there was one, one other one I found. It's kind of a 99% joke. This one, um, the guy on the f- back of the limo is on the phone. And he says, there's been an accident, but it doesn't involve me. <laughs> Um, I'm debating whether to show the pig picture. Um, so the um, part of the history of writing this book was that um, you know, so I had had all this great material. Um, I, I remember literally that my first day on the job, um, I was given that. Um, that first accident that I showed you, the rollover, uh, and I was given that police report, and my my uh, boss told me to go through with highlighters. They, we would we would use um, literally like four or five different colors of highlighters, and we'd go through police reports or depositions. And there was this uh, color code system for highlighting things that were important, um, and your know, most important things were like red and and things that you were important that you should look at but not like the most critical stuff would be yellow um and then stuff that was maybe interesting you'd put down in blue and this was this was to help the expert witness so he could flip through the thing and just read the stuff that was highlighted um and then we would also sometimes throw in orange or uh, green for highlighting information that related to something in particular that was of interest so you'd flip through these things and it looked like some kid had been scribbling in it with his his crayons and that was my job on the first day to go through that report, um, and it was you know it was kind of a horrifying experience. Um, there were five people in that vehicle, and they all died. Um, a really tragic accident. Um, I remember one of uh, it, it didn't come up on the first day, but in one of the depositions, I learned that one of the family members of the um, one of the deceased uh, learned that there had been an accident and that his, I think it was his uncle or his father maybe, had been killed. Um, he learned that because he called his um, his family member's cell phone because they, they were late for something. They were trying to figure out where, where this family member was, called the cell phone, and uh, the coroner at the scene answered the phone. Um which is one of those details that surprised... Like, if I feel like if I threw that in a book, people would say, the coroner wouldn't answer the phone. You know, they'd let it ring. Um, but he actually did. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's just this incredible stuff um, from, a, from a dramatic perspective. And, you know, my, I remember leaving work that first day thinking, I'm going to need to try and write a novel about this. Um... But, but you you you're kind of left with all this. I worked in the field for about three years um, and worked on uh, some a lot more than others, but maybe a dozen accidents a year. So, um, you know, but after three years, I had literally dozens of accidents that I worked on, um, and you know, some of them were were really interesting. Quite a few of them were really interesting, and. Uh, and a lot of them had, you know, really interesting stories around them uh, relating to the people who were involved. Um, but it's is so episodic, you know. And so the 
the problem became how do I how do I use these stories in a in a novel? How do I connect them? Um, and you know, part part of the resolution of that was to um, make the story about characters who are reconstructing accidents. Um, you know, one of the things that I also wanted to to sort of work through in the book was that that space that I was talking about between the the human emotional tragic aspects of the accidents themselves and this very calculated cold way of the the reconstructionist has to to work on those accidents um and so i was, I was interested in that and the, the effect that that has on people who are doing that work um and but it also you know ultimately i needed these people to to be involved in or have some relation to some accidents in their own lives um, so that that the the novel could work on exploring you know how people deal with those those accidents when they actually happen to them as well um, so it, you know there's a lot of elements that I needed to bring together. The book um, took me about seven years between the time I started working on it and finally finally finished up um, and there was a point about five years in where I thought I was done. And the book, um, I'd, I'd, a year earlier, I'd given it to my agent, and um, he had given me some feedback, and I'd worked through his feedback, and I gave it to him again, and, and he was happy with it. So uh, he started trying to sell it. Um, and we... We actually sold it into into the UK. There was a, a publisher there that had bought my first book and when the, my or my first novel rather, the Articles of War. And when uh, they bought that book, they wanted a two book contract, so they they had already had a contract for the second book. And so um, my agent started sending the Reconstructionist to editors in the US. Um, and he sent it to the publisher in the UK that already had a contract for it. And so we started getting rejections from uh, U.S. editors. And um, yeah, a month or two in, a uh, note comes from the publisher in the UK. And they're like, we love it. It's great. We're going to put it in the catalog. It's going to come out next spring. Meanwhile, we keep getting more rejections in the U.S. And... Um, so that that process went on for months, and um, at a certain point, my my agent was just kind of discouraged. But he had a secret plan he didn't tell me about, which was uh, to see if he could sell it um, as a TV series. And so one day he calls me up and says, "Hey, this guy's interested in buying it as a TV series uh, because he he he'd sent it to uh, his agents. His agency has you know a." a West Coast Wing, and they they'd been working on it over there. So we we optioned it for a TV series and had it sold in the UK before. And well, we still didn't have any anyone in the US who had um, bought the book. And so then my agent sent it out for another round with a letter that you know explained that this book's already been picked up in the UK. There's a it's been optioned for a TV series. Um, and and finally we we had a publisher that took it. It was. Harper Perennial, and the editor's name is Cal Morgan, um, who's been, out of the three books I've worked on, he's, he's been the best editor I've worked with, um, but rather slow to give feedback. 
So he bought the book. It took about six months, I think, for him to, to send me his, his editorial comments on it. And when he did, it was, it was about nine pages of ning- single-spaced notes. And, and meanwhile, the UK people have just been rushing forward, and uh, they were at the copy editing stage. And so um, what, what ultimately happened was the UK book went ahead on, on their schedule and came out um, in that, that sort of original version. While I went to work with the US editor... Um, to, to work through his comments. And his, his, you know, there were nine pages of notes, but the, the biggest part of it um, had to do with the beginning of the book and his feeling like um, the beginning of the book needed to do a better job of establishing who the characters are and the relationships between the characters before, before the sort of larger plot of the book kicks into motion. And... Um, he thought I needed to write maybe 15 or 20 pages to, to do that. Ended up writing about 100 pages that were added to the front of the book. Um, so the UK book came out without those 100 pages, and you can, you can actually get that book and compare it, and it's about 100 pages lighter than the, the book that's back there for sale. Um, and so so i was I was trying to figure out how to how to better establish my characters and the relationships between them and um you know and I, it, when he he made these comments it was i mean at this point I was five five and a half years into it, and I was just sick of it um, but i could i could you know in my heart I could feel that he was he was right about this um so you know i I went to work on it and one of the things I realized was that I needed an accident to sort of structure this this new material around, um, because they're, they're you know the two main characters are Ellis and Boggs, and then Boggs' wife Heather, um, and but Ellis and Boggs are both Reconstructionists, and the, you know Boggs is Ellis's boss, and you know I need to show the relationship between those two in the context of their work, which is reconstructing crashes, so I need a crash to center things around. Um, but I used all the crashes that I thought were really interesting that I had worked on already. Like I'd, I'd spent myself. So what I did was I went uh, to a friend of mine who um, I'd worked with and who's still doing it, and I bought him a couple beers and I just got him talking about what he was working on. And so he told me about this this accident that um, it actually happened in California in Monterey. Um, the book is all centered in the, the Midwest, so I moved it to Wisconsin. Um, but it involved these wild pigs that had been, um, uh, and which are a, a real problem in Monterey. And they're all over the country now. They happen to be a particularly big problem in Monterey. Um, and the accident happened because a guy was going down the road, and he came on this, this scene where six, seven, eight, I forget the exact number in reality, um, but the, a large number of these pigs had been um, hit by cars and were roadkill all over the roadway. And so this guy um, started you know, maneuvering around them, swerved around one too hard, and ended up going off the road and hitting a tree. Um, and so he was, uh, he was injured or killed. I, for, I forget the, the details of my friend's story. But um, so the, the plaintiffs were... There, 
representing this guy's family, and they sued the state highway department for not building a tunnel under the road so that the pigs could migrate through without um, getting hit by cars. And um, so, so um, one of the one of the issues one of the issues that came up in the case was, and this is all in the book, by the way, um, because you know this was this was great, and um, I could I could you know write all sorts of stuff around this. Um, well, one of the issues that came up in the book was, or not in the, but came up in the case, was whether you could see these pigs in the road, because these pigs are like a black color, and, um, you know, the road is black, and the pig's out there in the road, and is it reasonable to expect that a driver coming down the road at 35, 40 miles an hour, whatever the speed limit on that road was, would be able to see a black pig on a black road in time to stop or move around it? And so what my, um, my friend did was he went out um, and found a farmer who had uh, killed one of these pigs, and he bought the hide of the pig from the guy. And then he um, went to um, the hardware store and bought, a, bought some wood, bought some screws, and built this frame and put the pig, pig hide over the top of the frame and stuffed you know, foam in it to make it look as, as much like a real pig as possible, put wheels on the bottom, and then he and a partner went out to the roadway where the accident happened. And um, one of them would push the pig out into the road. And the other one would stand up the road with a camera and take... In, so the guy who pushed the pig in the road... <laughs> my friend is laughing as he's describing this. He's like, so I, he would push the pig out in the road. And then, then I had to go run and hide in the bush beside the road <laughs> so that I wouldn't be in the picture. Um, and then, you know, the other guy would take some pictures, and then they'd hear a car coming, so he'd have to run back out into the road, grab the, this zombie pig thing, drag it off the road, and um, he said it was like a Monty Python skit. <laughs> so uh, the book has scenes. It has that very scene where they're running in and out of the road. Um, and I worked on that for about a year, um, just based on you know that listening to the the story from my friend over the drink and um, and then when i when the book came out i asked uh, I asked my friend if if I could use uh, some of the animations that that we had worked on together um, for presentations about the book and so he sent me some animations that he said I could use, and then he also sent me a picture of the pig and it was the first time I'd ever actually seen the pig. <laughs> And uh, I, th- I think I covered it in the book as well. One of the things they did was that the, um, the pigs involved in the accident were a black color, and the, uh, the pig that the farmer had, had killed was a, what they call a piebald pig. It was sort of more of a blonde color, so they actually spray-painted the pig black. <laughs> um... I've got one more picture. This is the pig at 130 feet. It is kind of hard to see, isn't it? Um, and then this doesn't come up in the book, but the um, the state highway department actually lost that case 
and my friend said he his feeling was it didn't have anything to do with the reconstruction of the the crash or whether or not you could see the pig at 130 feet or any of that. What it came down to is that the um, the the pig problem in Monterey was such a severe problem that you could not get a jury that wasn't full of people who uh, had run into pigs or knew people who'd had horrible accidents with pigs. And um, so, uh, so just to prove that not everything in the book is a car crash or a horrible pig zombie thing or whatever, I'm just going to read one really short section. And this is also from Life. Uh, this is describing Ellis's first job as an engineer. He, uh, he took a job... Um, they made truck axles, and this this is based on uh, an internship that I worked um, when I was in college. And this is I'm going to read literally one page here. Ellis's first job out of college had been in a plant that made truck axles. He began each day at 5:15 a.m. with a journey across the factory floor, where curiosity led him on circuitous routes through rows of drills and lathes assembly lines, stamping presses, robot arms maneuvering weld pincers, and a heat treatment area where tubular furnaces glowed and flamed under the care of hunched, thin old men wearing goggles and heavy asbestos gauntlets so that they looked like Halloween demons in an actual hell. Ellis enjoyed these walks, enjoyed the spectacle of a mechanized world where the sprawl of machines spread out of sight to all sides, conveyor systems crisscrossed overhead and grates underfoot bridged gutters coursing with used cutting fluids, whitish stuff that looked like streams of milk. And he liked how sometimes, as if to punctuate the strangeness, a sparrow swooped down from overhead and worried at a stray Cheeto or muffin paper on the blackened floor. But little else about the job suited him. He had finished his bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering without developing any concrete ideas about what he wanted to do with it. He had supposed that an engineer should want to work with things that made things, so he had taken a job where things were made. His particular realm was a 10.5-inch differential assembly line with 22 manned stations that pieced together a set of gears and then secured them into a housing called a pig head because it looked like one. The line workers accomplished their tasks by fitting parts into fixtures, then pressing buttons to engage a hydraulic press or spin down a set of bolt drivers. Then they pulled out the result and put it on a conveyor to the next station. It went station to station this way, gaining parts at each step until it reached the end of the line where the assembled pig heads were stacked on a pallet and a forklift carried them off to another assembly line where axle shafts and brakes were added. Ellis was ostensibly an engineer. He had been given a box of business cards that read Ellis Barstow, Engineer. And on his first day, a bearing press operator had come to shake his hand and said, Great to meet a new engineer, the man grinned. Know why I like engineers? He then, while Ellis stared, comprehension lagging, dropped the top half of his coveralls to show his hairy, purple-nippled chest, and he did a little hula dance. Because they suck great dick, he shouted. And then he pulled up his overalls and went back to work. That actually happened to a friend of mine. (laughs) Except he he didn't just drop down to his chest, he dropped all the way down to nothing. Um, Are we running late? We probably need to... All right, good. All right, let's do Q&A. Let's do it. Q&A. With both. 
Is somebody MNCing Q&A, or should I just ask for cues? I'll just ask for cues. allegiances to the reader pretty much um, you know my background is journalism and so it's not that hard to step back and look at characters as characters and to not no journalist is objective I hate that word objectivity in journalism if you gave a shit about a story I mean you know if you did a story you Objectivity is out the window if you really stick with it and care about it deeply um, the way I cared about this story that I turned into a book. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's thinking about the reader and trying to just to make it as clear as possible. Um, it's, it's a lot about clarity. It's a lot about clarifying what happened. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but... Um, I'm sorry, I'm totally spaced out at the moment. Re- rephrase the question for me. Are there kind of competing allegiances for you as you're reconstructing a story based on, like, um, you know, Catherine talked about her main allegiances to the reader? Yeah. Um, well, um, you know, I mean, one of the things, it's, it's funny how facts get in the way in fiction. You'd think you could just write them out. Um, but, I, you know, I think every, everyone who's been in a workshop has had the experience of, um, you know, everybody in workshops saying, you know, this thing that happens in your story is not believable. And then at the end of the class, the person who wrote the story says, but that really happened to me. Um, and yeah, that, that little scene I wrote, read at the end, um, that um, the, the reason that the, the, the worker in the scene doesn't drop trow fully and dance around with his, his privates bouncing around um, like he really did is because my editor was like, it's just not believable. Um, <laughs> And you know the thing is it it doesn't it doesn't matter if it's believable um it matters i mean I'm mean, sorry it does matter whether it's believable it doesn't matter whether it really happened or not um because it's fiction and um you know your 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 compact with the the reader in that case is is that I'm gonna tell you a story that that kind of makes a little more sense of life than life really makes of itself um in in some way, in some sort of 
large organic sense um maybe not maybe not in terms of you know can I piece this together? But there's, there's a way, you know, we, we, I mean, we, we, we understand life through narrative, right? We're constantly trying to say this happened, which led to this happening, which led to this happening. And, you know, a lot of times who knows whether this happening was really connected to that happening. Um, but that's, that's the way we understand things is by putting them into these narratives. And, um, you know, that's, that's the power of fiction is to, to harness those those narratives that we use to understand life and and try to give them an even bigger framework and sort of um it's you know i I was just short time ago trying to think of you know what what is the justification for fiction um and there are a lot of justifications for fiction but but one of the one i was thinking about was that in a way it's like it's it's like the the Plato's cave of life. Um, you know, the, there's there's the reality which we see as the the shadows on the wall, and it's it's projection of some I- ideal thing. And fiction, I, when it's at its best, sort of gets closer to that ideal thing where you look at it and you're like, yeah, that's like life, but even even more so. Somehow it it, it connects more fully than than life itself. Yeah. Yeah, the difference between Articles of War and the Reconstructionist in terms of um, yeah, Articles of War is is set during World War II and it's about a soldier, uh, a GI in Europe during the war. Um, yeah, I wasn't born until thirty years after World War II had ended, so obviously I didn't have that experience to to draw on, um, and I, I created that story out of my head and also a lot out of um, um, memoirs and oral histories. Um, and I was, I was telling someone here earlier tonight, one of the, the things that I like about working on historical fiction is, or, and this applies too to, to, um, to contemporary fiction, but where you're, you're taking things not out of your own life, but taking things out of uh, other people's lives or out of... Um, something you've read about you know the contemporary world but when you when you do that you can take things that you know are interesting and put them into your story and you you have the sort of uh, because you're, you're seeing those things objectively they're not a part of your life you can look at them objectively and say that's interesting i'm going to take it and put it in my story um whereas when i'm creating stuff just out of my own head or or taking things from my own life i always have that that little nagging doubt whether this is actually going to be interesting to anybody else um, so in some ways, I, you know, I find that kind of process of, of taking things uh, from history um, and creating a story around them to be easier just because I can, I can kind of steal these things and I, I have this confidence that they're interesting in a way that I don't necessarily um, when I'm taking them from my own life. Was it difficult to know at what point to cap the complexity so as not to lose the reader? I can imagine it would be very easy to become personally fascinated with complexity. That's a really good question, and it's a huge problem. I mean, it's a giant problem with 
any subject in nonfiction is how technical you know do you get and how how do you make a, an accurate presumption about how much terminology the reader already understands or not so it's just it's like anything you have to have a certain amount of trust in the intelligence of the reader number 1 you you know you start explaining every term then it's all over um you're talking down to a reader and that's that's not going to work um on the other hand uh, there was a very technical point in Simon Says that had to do with law in Colorado, um, a law called, well, a process called direct file, where um, district attorneys um, made the decision to prosecute whether it was a kid or not independently. And in most other states, that decision was made by a judge who took into account, you know, the kid's whole life, mitigating factors, whether he had committed a crime before. And here it was strictly, you know, the prosecutor's decision to do that. And it seemed like a really important point to make in the book that um, that's the way it happened here. You got arrested when you were 15 and you went straight to jail. And then you waited it out. You didn't go to a juvenile facility. You didn't have a judge who was going to say, well, you know, bad judgment, bad decision, but this kid has never committed another crime. It seemed important to explain that. But then the problem becomes, well, how much time are you going to give this issue? And so you try to explain it, and then you condense it and condense it and condense it and condense it to make the finest point possible so that if anybody wants to if that strikes somebody as something that's really interesting then they can go out and find out the technicalities about it themselves um, but yeah it's a huge issue um, how much to go into it I'm sure it's even more so with physics <laughs> I can't even imagine yeah I mean it's a difficult question there's no right answer to that question um, I remember when I, I was in the middle of writing the book and I sent it to a couple of friends. Um, I, I sent it to several friends, uh, but one who was an engineer, one of his comments was he thought there was too much technical stuff in the book. And I thought it was funny that an engineer would say that. And meanwhile, a guy who was, not, who was a lawyer, actually, but not an engineer, said, the technical stuff's really interesting. You should have more of that in there. Um, so, you know, you never never going to get it right for everybody um i you know i think the approach i took was i i i just wanted enough technical stuff at, at core i wanted just enough technical stuff to to do um what i needed to to in service of the story um and at, at a sort of my more minute level you know i have a little fascination with some of these these odd little technical terms like point of rest and point of impact and um, driver inputs and so I got a kick out of you know including those in the story and you know I think those help give the reader a flavor of, of what the work is like and that you know you can see in just in the very language that disconnect between the emotion and the um, the analysis of the accident um, but you know basically just um, and I, I I think I as much as anything tried to err on the side of not you know covering too much technical stuff and um, this, the stuff that is in there was, you know, to me should be just enough to, to convey the story. The story was the thing. And 
um, and I wanted just enough of the technical stuff that however much I needed in service of the story. Thumbs up from Dan. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Writers Podcast. We bring this to you thanks to the Lighthouse members, funders, and listeners like you who support the cause. We are grateful to the SCFD Tier 3 for their support. More information on the Lighthouse Writers Workshop and opportunities for involvement can be found on our website, lighthousewriters.org.